on tech that's not even built yet to solve problems in the future that they believe they're going to have. That is crazy town to me. Welcome to Founder Chats by Barometrics, where we chat with founders and hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Justin Cook, the founder and CMO of Empire Flippers, a curated marketplace for buying and selling established, profitable websites and online businesses. Enjoy. Justin, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. How are you? Good, man. Thanks for having me on, Brian. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Uh, I want to dive right into it with you. Tell me, where did you get started on your entrepreneurial journey? So my current business partner and I, uh, after a six-year stint in the Navy, you know, we teamed up uh, to start a mortgage company. First off, you know, he got me into the mortgage business. I was, you know, in college and struggling and trying to figure out what I was going to do financially. And he was like, look, I've got this mortgage gig. I'm working as a loan officer. Why don't you come try that out? And this was back in, you know, 2004, 2003, 2004. And, you know, things were hot in the mortgage industry in, in California. And so, you know, I joined his company and we kind of like learned the basics about sales and, you know, uh, telesales and how to do business over the phone. And, you know, we ended up starting our own mortgage company out of that, uh, branching off on our own saying, I think we can do this better. And so, you know, we started a mortgage company and it was just effectively a services company, right? We're delivering a service to people, helping them get their loans. And, uh, you know, we started working from home with a third partner and, you know, that's kind of how we got started, you know, entrepreneurially. That's awesome. Um, and what was that? I, I know it doesn't make sense to necessarily go too far into it, but it's just kind of curious to me of like, well, what is that process like to take people and, and like, were you just finding, I, I guess actually the whole process sort of intrigues me of like, how do you find people? And then like, is it like, like, could I do that? Could I be like, yeah, I'll just go get people some mortgages. Like it seems like a, yeah. a pretty, a pretty it, it, mortgages are one of those things to me. It seems like probably they feel a lot more like, structured and like complicated than they probably actually are in practice yeah so this was the wild west too this is uh, before yeah. the you know a, a financial crisis and and uh you know breakdown so you know it was a little little crazier back then you know but joe and i we went and got our uh, real estate licenses in california which meant we could work for a broker which means we can use any of the lenders they have and so it was effectively just you know getting lists or leads and calling people on the phone and you know talking to them and if they're interested in potentially refinancing their mortgage we would help them with that so we were doing this on our own as you know loan officers ourselves once we got licensed, we said, look, why don't we hire a bunch of other uh, mortgage uh, people, other, other loan officers, and they can do their loans through our license, right? And so we'll allow them to operate through our license right. as assistants. And so, you know, this is kind of our first experience of like hiring people. And we were hiring people off of Craigslist. We actually uh, um, put an ad out on Craigslist to hire someone out of the Philippines uh, to help us find these loan officers. They were posting on Craigslist to find loan officers so they could come close deals with us. And what we were offering as a unique kind of value prop is we were giving huge commissions compared to what these people are getting from their, you know, main jobs or whatever at their mortgage companies and our thought was like look if we give them a, a lion's share of the you know revenue that's coming in they're going to close their deals with us and they did uh what we realized over time is that by giving away the farm to people that wasn't actually helpful it would have been better for us to give them 
uh, more supportive structure and take more of the fees for ourselves. So right. meaning giving them leads, giving them support, giving them a team that they can work with, and then giving them much smaller commissions, that's a better model for as a business than to just give away a whole bunch and hope you're going to you know draw people over to do business with you. Uh, but we didn't know that. And so we were giving much larger commissions to people to come close their deals with us. And so we were getting a number of deals through this is two through 2004, 2005, 2006. Uh, and we were kind of working these deals and, and uh, you know, working with them and trying to get these loans closed. And, you know, as business was kind of starting to pick up and we were starting to actually, you know, make something of it, you know, we started to see the financial crisis looming. So right. a lot of the banks started closing up their requirements, not allowing certain loans to go through. Um, not Loans that were previously A-OK, uh, that were problematic. Uh, appraisers weren't get, giving the valuations they were previously. And so we saw the writing on the wall for the financial crisis before the financial crisis happened. Right. But we didn't know anything, right? We didn't know what was going on. We didn't know exactly why that was. We just knew that banks were no longer taking deals. And so we found ourselves in a really bad position where we weren't making any money and we were going to have to go get a job. So there was a time I remember we, were, we had a little home office and we were sitting around at our desks in the living room, which we kind of converted to, a, to an office. And we said, I, I, think, I think this is it. I think we're going to have to go get jobs somewhere. We're going to figure something out. Right. And, uh, you know, the three of us had been in this weird position where, I don't know if any of your listeners have dealt with this, but, you know, we were all kind of paid the same. We made the same amount of money no matter how the business was doing. Mm -hmm. And as the business did worse, one of the partners, the third partner, basically stopped working at all. Yeah. And so we're in this position where, you know, the two of us are having to pull for the three of us to make any money. And, you know, my current business partner, Joe, was the second partner. He was like, look, I just can't do this. I'm not going to work when he's not working. Right. And then I'm in a position where, like, I, I can't do it all. I just can't. And, you know, there wasn't much money there anyway. It was declining. So we were in this, like, downward spiral of failure where the money was becoming less and less, uh, the, no one was doing the work, and the business was going out of business effectively. So it was a pretty rough time, um, and I had to go find a job. So I went and I found a job at a at local SEO company that was looking for like uh, junior level, mid level managers, um, and I took a role as a sales manager. Eventually, became uh, one of their trainers, and uh, and you know started working there and had to get a job. So that was a really it was a good learning uh, 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 lesson learned because you know I realized that in abject failure in business, things aren't that bad, right? Like I can go get another job, I can get back on my feet. It's gonna suck and it's gonna be painful, but you know, a couple of months later, things are can can turn around for you. So it was helpful in like you know realizing you can take a stab at something and you know you're not gonna be completely destitute after. Yeah, absolutely. Did you feel like that at the time or did it take you a while to sort of come around to that bigger picture realization? Uh, yeah, it didn't feel like that at the time. It felt like I was I was screwed and right. that <laughs> life was going to not be good for many years. Um, that wasn't the case. Um, obviously, a couple of months later, I was like, okay, I'm back at it. And I was quite relieved, actually, to go from running a business badly, but running a business all the same and having to wear so many different hats to like just taking a role at a company where I have a, a fairly limited um, 
responsibilities and a limited impact, but like, you know, like a limited role right. was a real relief. It was like a warm blanket of, of like the failure of entrepreneurship. So it was, it was really nice actually to be able to take a step back and not have all those responsibilities on my shoulders. Now, that didn't last for very long. It was a couple of years and I was back at it again. But I think I needed a period of time working for another company and not having all of the weight of the company on my shoulders. Yeah, I guess it, it depends on a lot of different factors. But is that like a general pattern that you think is like good of like work for a company? I guess it would have to be for somebody who's interested in being an entrepreneur, obviously. But, you know, go work for a company, start a company probably going to fail, you know, go get a job, then, you know, go back at it, you know, and kind of, is that a cycle that you think is, is like uh, useful for other people? Or is it kind of, it might also be just like too specific to be, have that be like generalized advice. Yeah. Maybe it's specific for me, but I can tell you this, we much prefer to hire people that have worked for a company that have worked in an office. Um, you know, we have a totally remote uh, team, distributed team. So we've got, you know, Americans living in Portugal. We've got, you know, some British guys living in um, uh, Colombia. So we've got, you know, a team all over the place. As long as you have an internet connection, you know, you can work with our company. And so and we do travel and meetups, you know, outside of COVID times. And we do these kind of travels and meetups and get togethers, which is really, really fun. And so I think you really appreciate that if you've worked in an office where you don't have that kind of remote travel capability. And so we found people that have worked in an office, have done a few years, have done some time, are just much more appreciative of the role and tend to stick a yeah. bit better in our company, totally. if that makes sense. That makes perfect sense. So what did you what did you get into after that? Yeah, so you know, we our mortgage company was a big bust, but one of the things that worked out really well was was the hiring of uh, the Filipino assistant, basically. Now, this is before Odesk or Upwork or any of those things, right? right? right. Um, this is, you know, this is way back in the day, and so there there weren't all these, like, virtual assistant kind of hiring things. So we, you know, put out ads all over Craigslist, and we ended up hiring someone in a place called Davao City, Philippines, in the south of the Philippines, and she was fantastic. You know, she was doing this work remotely for us. You know, there was a time where I uh, Joe and I were driving down the freeway and he was on, this is like pre-Android, so it was like on some mobile, Windows mobile phone and like chatting with her in the Philippines while I'm driving down the freeway and we're like, man, there's something about this. This is like, he's like giving her direction and things to do and right. like there's something about, this is going to be the future, man. This is, <laughs> this is interesting. This is great. Yeah. And this is, you know, 2005, 2006 or whatever, right? So, you know, when we end up working for, I ended up working for this SEO company and ended up bringing Joe into it after about a year of him like playing poker on the side. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> You know, we they had, we were hiring people right and left, and so we found a real need to hire additional people. And we said, "Look, we've got a connection in the Philippines. Why don't we set something up over there?" And so, you know, we pitched it to our boss, the CEO, CFO, and they went for it. So we ended up setting up a team in the Philippines to do a lot of this kind of like back office work um, for this SEO company. At this point, it's like 2008, 2009. Joe and I are uh, mid-level managers of this company and starting to build a team in the Philippines, and so. Eventually, we pitched our uh, bosses. We were feeling the itch again. And we said, look, why don't we set up a company in the Philippines? We'll run that, and we'll run an outsource team that'll be much cheaper and much more efficient. We'll go over there and run it for you. And, you know, they went for it. So we ended up setting up an outsourcing company in the Philippines and then moving to the Philippines to run it. Wow. That seems, it seems like that moved pretty quickly. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. So this was within two years, I think, of being at the company. Like we had, we'd already, you know, felt like you know we were ready to get back on the horse, right? We'd worked for this other company and had that kind of limited role and responsibilities, and we were like, okay, we'd kind of uh, you know worked our mojo back and said, you know, let's why don't we start a company? Why don't we get back at it and try it again? And so again, it was another services company. This is an outsourcing company at this point, and so we went over to the Philippines to start an outsourcing company. Now. Within a year of doing that, our previous employers had cut back on us dramatically. Right. And so we'd added a few new clients, but then they'd cut back significantly. They were our major client at the time. We said, look, we're going to have to do something else. We're going to have to figure out some other use for our crew here. Um, rather than laying them off and trying to, like, you know, kind of build back uh, with less people, let's figure out something for them to do so we can at least pay for their salaries. So we did a few things. One of the things we ended up doing was building out some small niche websites that made money with Google AdSense. And these are just, you know, like literally like sites like bluesuedeshoes.net. One that we actually had, a, a domain we actually had was catconstipation.net. <laughs> okay. Um, and apparently this is a problem. I don't know, for cat owners, you know, constipated cats can be a real issue. Um, but we built out all these small niche sites and put ads on them, and they were making money. And so we had a team of people in the Philippines that we were working with helping us do this. So we built up all these small niche sites, um, and, you know, they started making money. We started, you know, scaling up that side of the business. That's really cool. Is that sort of a lesson that you learned like with the loan officers from the first business you kind of you put more on them and and you kind of gave them a bigger share it sounds like with the with the second business you were like okay well let's kind of keep focus on that structure and like we don't want to let anybody go but it almost sounds like you kind of doubled down on the structure and and maybe tried to learn a lesson from that that first round well, well we definitely wanted to own the product and the process, mm -hmm. right? So rather than having like independent people doing their own thing, we realized having them work under the structure that we built um, and having them build out products that were not necessarily owned by them made a lot of sense. So I'll skip forward a little bit, but you know, we started building out these small net sites that, and we realized that there was a market for actually selling these websites and people were buying them off of us. Mm. And you know, they were making, you know, hundred bucks a month or 150 bucks a month and they would buy them for two, three thousand dollars and so there was a market for buying these eventually we realized that there was a huge market for people buying online businesses websites and online businesses from other entrepreneurs and so we allowed other people to list and sell their websites and online businesses with us and so they'd sell a 20 30 40 50 thousand dollar website with us and we would broker the sale and what we eventually, you know, because we ended up brokering these businesses, you know, we were acting as a broker. But instead of hiring just sales agents and letting them kind of bring in their own deals and kind of closing their deals, you know, through our brand, we built the process out. So it wasn't them bringing their own leads. We already had the lead machine. We ended up building a, a blog and a podcast. So all of the people that were looking to sell or, or you know, sell the, their business or their website through us, they were coming to us. It was all inbound leads. Needs. So we basically built out a team, a brokerage around inbound leads we had built up through our content marketing. That's really cool. So yeah, so instead of having like independent, independent kind of like, uh, you know, a, a high priced brokers that would come in and kind of do their individual deals, right. uh, we decided to build a collaborative team that could work together on the deals to close the deals for the company. So just to give you an example compared to the mortgage industry, you know, the way we were running that was if someone brings in their deal, 
they're the only ones working on it. So, you know, if they're, you know, big loan that they're working on, like no one, no other loan officers are going to help them with that because no one's making a commission. Right. They're making the full commission. Right. We get a small piece of it and they get the you know, most of the, the commission. Whereas with Empire Flippers, you know, people would look to list their business with us and the whole team would be working on it. It didn't matter whether you had, you know, one salesperson, you know, let's say that salesperson got sick for a week, another person would be happy to step in. And the reason is they weren't making a commission on an individual deal. It was a company-wide bonus. So we compensated mm-hmm. people through, uh, you know, uh, through the, uh, all the deals we were doing, not just any individual deal. And so that made a much more collaborative sales team rather than an individual competitive team. Yeah, that's really interesting. How do you think about incentivizing and, and compensating the team to get everybody aligned towards like the the what's best in the best interest of the company? Yeah, it's really challenging. So incentives are critical because if you incent, it's a bit of a game, right? If you incent even the right thing, they may do that thing as opposed to others that are necessary for the business. Right. I'll give you an example. If it's all about, you know, closing businesses now, for example, if we just, we only paid people and, and the real focus was on closing deals this month or this quarter, right. there'd be very little effort or energy or thought put into long-term gains, right? So the marketing team might do everything to squeak out deals this quarter and not lay any foundation that's going to help us 12, 18, 24 months from now. So you'd be very careful when you're setting up incentive structures, uh, whether it's for your management team or your just general team overall. Um, That's something you as kind of founders and entrepreneurs need to be mindful of as well. You you may not be, even if you're saying about compensation structure, uh, incentive structure, um, you may not be exactly aligned with your team in some ways. And so being very uh, mindful and clear about, you know, where you're not aligned will help um, rough out, like, like uh, soften out some of the edges of the conversations you're going to have with your team going forward. So th- there's always been, uh, uh, there's been some conflict between kind of shorter term or longer term things, right? So uh, one example of this is we paid our incentive and compensation structure based on revenue not on profit to the business. Mm. And the re- our, our thinking is is that there's going to be things we need to do where we need to spend um, heavily for growth two, three, four years down the road. And so we, don't, we didn't want our team to be um, resistant to that. Right. Uh, because we need to like lay down some of that infrastructure that's going to support us in the long term. And so that's great um, to some degree, but then you end up with a management team who is not adverse to spending money. Right, right. So, so they're like, look, I will spend, you know, $10 to make five, right? Sure. <laughs> uh, that, that's five extra dollars. So um, I think we're realizing that management paid on some balance between revenue and profit and kind of team paid on revenue isn't such a terrible structuring. So we're making some of those changes right now, actually. Interesting. And how do you, does that help with the, the timing, you know, sort of the, the horizon focus of making the, making the managers more profit focused and making the, so naturally I would imagine that's a longer term perspective, a, a bigger, or at least a full, you know, it's at least a full P&L perspective for the managers and having the individual contributors focus on revenue, that probably makes them a little bit more short-term focused. Does that help solve the sort of the timeline 
focused mm. for them or yeah, not really yeah okay. <laughs> so the, the way you balance that out is with equity mm. right so if they have some equity stake in it long term that's where they're going to get more aligned with the founders because they're going to see the two three four five year horizon that you do right and they're going to they're going to get some compensation based on that so they're kind of like shorter term compensation as a management team based on profit keeps keeps them mindful of expenses um, but they're also not going to totally sell out uh, for short-term profits because they have that long-term equity incentive as well. Gotcha. Interesting. When we've been thinking about a similar thing, so I'm, I'm curious to kind of get your feedback. Um, you know, we're, we're owned by a private equity firm, so we have a lot of like structure that we can yep. lean on. And um, even down to one of the things that's funny is that my, my title is general manager, mm-hmm. which is, I think, very atypical in the tech space. Um, but some people on the team, they were, they were like, ah, oh, it makes us sound like we're like a Wendy's. We have a general manager. But <laughs> like, it's, it's, a, it's a private equity thing. Don't, don't worry about it. Um, so one of the things we've been looking at is like, well, we, we have kind of our the top tier of our leadership within the companies. You know, there's the, the GM. And then we have a director of operations, which mm. is, you know, doing operations, which for anybody who hasn't really thought about that too much for me, operations is like running the business. It's like yeah. uh, it, operations feel like it's kind of a very like, um, you know, confusing or opaque things. And it's just like, no, it's like operating. It's like running the business. So the way we kind of look at it is like the the bulk of the director of operations should be focused like the, the things that they're they're going after and their initiatives are like zero to 30 day impact. And mm. then the GM should be looking at a 90 to 180 day impact. Um, and that's that's a way that's one lens that we've been looking at. But I'm, I'm kind of kind of curious, like how that how that hits your ears and what sort of, you know, based off of your experience, like, do you think uh, what do you think a when we talk again in six months? What do you think I'm going to have to say to you if that, that was uh, successful or not? Yeah, that's interesting. I think um, what would I just because there's some benefits, right? But one of the things that concerns me when I hear that is, you know, I hear someone, uh, an operations manager, director of operations that's focused only on the next 30 days. I wince a little because I want them to have at least a grasp on the bigger picture. Yeah. And so one of the things we've done and and maybe you guys implement it or or your listeners can, it's been really successful for us. And we can look back over seven, eight years and and look at our our roadmap. But what we do is we do a quarterly strategy meeting. And so this is a, it used to be everyone when we were very small. It was eight of us, nine of us. It was everyone on the team. But now it's you know senior management only. But what we do is every quarter we get together and we look at, um, and this is how we structure it. We look at the kind of like the big picture, the big vision, the three to five year plan. Where do we want to be? What's the business look like, feel like, taste like? Um, you know, the, the kind of like grander vision. And that doesn't change very much quarter to quarter. Um, it changed a little bit over, over the years it changes, but it doesn't change much quarter to quarter, but we just review it. And then we do our annual plan. We say, okay, to get to that goal, here's the goal post we need to be at at the end of the year, right? So are we going to make any changes to that? No, that's mostly the same. Okay, great. Now let's look at, look at what we did pre- the previous quarter and let's look at what we were doing this next quarter to hit our annual goal. And so you know, we do this and every department goes through their piece of this. So it's a very long meeting. It's about a eight, nine hour meeting. We do it you know, once every three months. But what it does, is it, it makes sure that everyone's aligned from the director of marketing to the you know, a VP of engineering, to the director of sales, to the director of operations, 
solutions. It makes everyone understand the bigger picture and the broader vision. And it allows them to kind of like work together. Okay, well, if that's your goal. You're going to need help from me. I see at the end of the month, because I'm going to need to do this, right? Yes. Okay. So let's, let's set it, let's set up a call so we can get that prepped for the end of the month. So it's just that strategy meeting and and you look back and, and it gives you, you know, it, it's not always a straight path, right? There are uh, zigs and zags, but you can look directionally over the last seven, eight years and at the path of the trajectory we've been on. And I think a lot of our success has been based on having those strategy meetings and kind of keeping everyone aligned and on the same page. So bringing it back to your director of operations, I'd want to make sure that they are a part of the conversation of like the bigger picture and where things are going because, you know, a myopic 30-day view um, isn't going to give them the kind of broader insights they need on where you're going to take this long term. Hmm. That's great. One of the other things that we've been thinking about now that I've, I've turned this interview into, uh, you know, a troubleshooting <laughs> session uh, is, you know, trying to find the right balance of how like i guess maybe like how well digested the goals are into actionable items so i think earlier on we bought the business in november of last year so mm-hmm. you know quarter one was kind of like there was very little direct uh you know uh, well th- there were a bunch of direct things that's from like a from a you know getting the company up to standard standpoint but the you know well, we want you to do this task at this level. And, you know, here's exactly, there, there was no, like, we're going to tell you exactly what to do because we know what works because we didn't know what worked. Mm, so yeah. it was like very like big picture of like, okay, we want to, this is the goal that we want to achieve. And we kind of put people in the situation of like, okay, well, we're going to let you sort of run your department and figure out how to get there. And I think mm. that definitely put us in, you know, kind of that, that former experience that you had of, it's like, well, how do we how do we do that <laughs> and yeah. you know what's going to work and and especially like you said as far as from like a long-term perspective that could really put those well you know in the first three to six months of an acquisition we really want to be kind of experimenting and dialing in you know understanding the business and the market and the customers so that we're you know everything leads from there the the product roadmap leads from there and the you know the the marketing messages and what we talk to customers about in success meetings and those sorts of things. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think again, I think, you know, having that kind of like three to four year, uh, four to five year vision of what you want the company to be. And that's going to be informed by uh, customers, their experience, their product, um, but not only, right. I mean, they're going to give you some feedback, but some of that vision has to be determined by the management team, by the board, uh, by the founders or the founders replacements. I mean, that has to be part of the vision of the company that doesn't always necessarily come from customer feedback. And so it's a, it's a, it's a mix between the feedback you're getting from customers and what you're seeing in the market versus, you know, what, what the company should be based on your vision. And so, you know, trying to balance that can be um, challenging, but I think, I think actually defining it and really painting the picture of what it should be is critically important because it gets everyone aligned on the same page. Like, you know, how if I got someone running a department and I say kind of like we want to be at, let's say in your case, like we want to be at a, I don't know, 1.2 million a month uh, at the three year mark, 36 months, right? Like that, that alone isn't enough for maybe me and the engineering department or the operations department to really formulate a plan. But if I say we want to be doing this and I like lay it out much more clear, like 
we want to be doing that much revenue, but it's going to require us to have this many customers. And this many customers, we're going to need to onboard this many customers per year, per quarter. Um, to onboard them, we're going to need these marketing efforts, right? You can like lay that out much more clearly. And then if as a marketing team, for example, if I know we need to have this many customers, that we need to onboard this many, we're going to churn this many, I have some sense on like where I'm hitting every quarter, quarter over quarter towards that kind of like end goal. And I know operationally how many people I'm going to need to support via customer support or, you know, other kind of like operational concerns, what I'm going to need to hit those numbers, right, in terms of personnel and training and getting them up to speed. So, yeah, I think having that bigger, broader vision and having everyone aware of it and then breaking it down into yearly or quarterly chunks is, is critical. That makes a ton of sense. And when you're thinking about kind of the the specifics, how much of it is, I guess, maybe um, uh, I'd say like, you know, like process based or, you know, outcome based or, you know, what's the blend? So, for example, for like sales team, you could say something like, you know, this is our quarter one sales target, which, you know, you can walk that all the way up the funnel and say, you know, this is how many you know, this is how many customers we need to close. So we need to do, we need to have this number of SQLs, which means mm -hmm. we need to do this number of demos, which means we need this number of trials, so on and so forth. And yep. that could also have a linkage to the marketing team too. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think it definitely makes sense to formulate like that like kind of outcome-based, uh, but how much of it is also, pro you know, process-based of like, well, how are we going to, you know, this is what the funnel looks like today. How are we going to change it? And one thing you might say to the sales team is like, well, we need to conduct like, weekly sales call reviews and do coaching sessions and you know finding those areas where we can really like win additional customers or improve the team or just kind of have those percentage point improvements how do you think about you know in in your organization would the would you deliver the the sales goal would you deliver the you know kind of the tactic directive or like what's the sort of blend in your mind between those yeah so the sales goal we're, we're actually switching we've always done kind of a top-down approach to sales saying okay here's what we want to hit and here's what it will take to get to that number here's what <laughs> we think we're need to get to and we're taking a more of a bottoms up approach to uh to goal setting now where we're looking at okay our salespeople can deliver this much uh, per person you know we can add you know we're gonna you know add this many salespeople this year we're gonna get to this dollar amount this is kind of our goal so that's a bit a bit of a change for us i'd say on the sales side, uh, it's it's pretty focused on quantity. Quality is important to them as well. So you know they are doing you know regular um, uh, call reviews with their team, and they have breakouts and all of that. But that's just kind of like continued maintenance. Um, the the number of people they're going to hire is to determine the uh, the the kind of goal setting, and then operationally, it's much more around quality standards. It's much more around um, uh, hitting certain service levels for our customers. There's a little more um, uh, process driven, I'd say. Uh, I'd also say that the, you know the further out you go with the goals, so our three to five year goals are a lot squishier, right? Um, than the kind of one year and the one year are a bit squishier than the quarterly. So it's much more tactical and much more. Um, measurable on the quarterly basis now right. not always not all uh, goals are as, as easily measured as others we try to make it that way but in practice it's not always um, so there will be some goals that are hard to verify um, and so th in those cases you do the best you can you know it's a it's a, a work in progress right for sure yeah yeah it's 
uh, certainly the case. Like we, one of our products is a financial forecasting tool and that's kind of like almost inherently built in. We have these like little um, area charts, which are funny. It's like kind of comparing what happens if you have, you know, one, one course of action goes this way. And, you know, mm. like what if we just keep running the business in the same way versus what if we do, you know, 2% better every single month or, you know, whatever the metric yeah, yeah. is. And it's mm -hmm. just funny if you extend that out to, two or three or five years it's just like the distance between those two lines it's like takes up the entire screen it's like it gets you know, well, it's like well we could be a yeah it gets so crazy and then some, then it's just like the further out you go the more finger in the air you are yeah, with it all right exactly. it's like trying to trying to yeah work out projections years from now is confusing i i put it this way you know like I, we have a pretty solid plan and vision for the next three or four years in our company like i see that pretty clearly um but the most clear is probably the next 12 to 18 months right like i know what we're doing over the next 12 to 18 months from the 18 month mark to the three to four year it uh, gets a little it's a little foggy yep. beyond that four-year plan it is ridiculously foggy right. i can't see, even see that yet i'm not terribly worried about that right now and in some industries you may need to and maybe there's some interest for me to try to think about that that kind of uh, period, but it's so far out that I, you know, we just we generally don't <laughs> we don't make that our right. focus. Yeah, it gets it gets tricky, and I I think certainly it's uh, I could there's there's double edged swords all over the place of like well if you're focused you know four years out are you executing you know like what's your next week look like <laughs> yeah this this is what's crazy to me is those companies where i'm thinking like elon musk types but like where they are trying to solve problems that they don't even have the tech it's right. not even there yet right so they're relying on tech that's not even built yet to solve problems in the future that they believe they're going to have that is crazy yeah. town to me um <laughs> it's fascinating but it's it's outside the scope of it. it's not something i'm uh, comfortable with or, or work with at all for sure yeah it's very it maybe goes back to kind of like you know the founder archetypes and if you're you know an engineer or you know if you're i was watching an interview with uh i don't remember his first name james dyson the the dyson guy you know the the vacuum dude um, yep. yeah he, he's kind of like that same type of you know i think I always love listening to people who are actual like inventors and engineers because mm. yeah, you're right. It's just like a totally different mindset of like, you know, their, uh, their work is like, well, you know, aren't, aren't fans too loud. It's like, what do you, what do you mean? <laughs> aren't, aren't vacuums like not good or whatever, you know, uh, all these sorts of things. So yeah, it's just interesting where, yeah, maybe the technology, I think most most entrepreneurs focus on the application of, of you know the technology that we have available to us, but there are some people that um, are pursuing things where the technology doesn't yet exist, or like mm. maybe even just like the math or science or physics aren't there yet, which is really insane to consider. One thing that's fun, well, fun, interesting um, as a founder, uh, and when you have a co-founder, um, it's really great to be in this position where you know you may be able to lay down some of the vision. Like I think it's fun to kind of like work out projects, test projects, see if they fail, see if they stick. But the long-term like improvement of them and mm -hmm. tweaking of them to make them better is just it's not fun for me and I'm, I'm much more on the kind of creative side of things and so like i like to work on projects that are fun uh, for me i know that sure. sounds silly but like sure. that's just that's how i operate best and so when it comes to like you know tweaking them or getting 20 percent improvements like that i just uh, i'm not terribly interested that that's an area where my business partner is really strong though right 
like working with the teams to really kind of work out the improvements. And so, you know, early days, like that's something we would do together. And it wasn't like I was only laying out the vision. and He was always just implementing and iterating. There's a there's a push and pull there. We would do both. But like I would lean more toward the vision stuff because it was fun for me. And he'd lean more toward the tweaking because that's something he did better. Right. Now we have, you know, a management team that they follow some of that same thing, some of the same things. So like on our marketing side, he's much more kind of like creative vision. And then he has people on his team that are more op- operational nuts and bolts that can help him kind of implement these these ideas. And and operationally, we have a director of operations who is great at just banging out processes, managing people. He's a very even-keeled guy. So he's fantastic at just kind of like, you know, m- making the, the, the ship run on time. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's, there's definitely two things that stand out to me there. One is like, to your point, knowing the type of person that you are is really important. Um, and I, I also have had to consider a, a, a similar consideration around like, like, uh, are, are we having like with everybody being remote and the pandemic going on? It's like, are we having fun? Like, is anybody like, uh, is anybody enjoying like what's going on right now? And I think probably for most people, it's like, well, not really. Like you have to, you have yeah. to kind of grade on the curve on a curve over the last 18 months or so. So we, we, we've been really uh, lucky in that, you know, we were already remote prior to the pandemic. So we had a remote distributed team. So a lot of our competitors struggled with that, right? If they were in offices and used to kind of working with each other directly, going remote was a bit of a challenge. Whereas like for us, it was just, you know, business as usual. So there's no real problem there. In fact, you know, we saw our business go up significantly. I think it was partly market share, but it was also partly online businesses doing so much better. Right. They're doing better. You know, we're selling them for more. We make more money. Um, but, but one of the things that we've struggled with a little bit is, you know, part of our hiring and onboarding is like bringing people out often to like exotic locations. It's like having them come out to Bali and kind of work with their crew. Right. And there's a big, there's a big piece of that, right? Like a lot of people are like, oh, I was the, the Medellin 2018 crew or I was the Bali 2019 crew. And they right. really kind of like resonate yeah, with that cool. kind of a where they came on and stuff. And so we've lost that during the pandemic. So we're not flying people around to do these meetups in person. Yeah. Also, you know, we found that, um, because you know it's, it can be high stress business that we're in. You know our, our customers get stressed, our team gets stressed. Even though we're remote, we try and get people together twice a year, and so we do these kind of like team meetups, and we meet up in Mexico City or the Philippines or you know a bunch of different places. And twice a year, we kind of get together, have drinks, have some fun together, you know, rent yachts, just kind of ball out for a while, right? And it's really really great for like. Um, you know, when you're apart and you're kind of in those stressful situations, to remember kind of who you're working with and right. who's on the other side of the the, the Zoom call. Um, and we haven't had that for a couple of years, so that's been kind of tough. I think it's easier to kind of get get each other's throats and right. and forget that you know there's like real people that you drink beer with on the other end. And so we finally did have a meetup in uh, Vegas and I went a little went a little nuts, but um, <laughs> it was nice. It was nice to get everyone to kind of together and to kind of get that feeling again. I think we're gonna do it. Um, we're not going to do it twice next year. We'll probably mm-hmm. do it um, maybe Q3 uh, of this year um, in 2022. So just one this year. But I think it's it's really important if you're running a remote team to still get together. I think I'd say twice a year and uh, and have some FaceTime. Yeah, yeah. We we actually did literally the same thing. We we met up with the the US based team uh, in in Vegas. Um, yeah, a couple of 
couple of months ago, and we kind of hit it just perfect. Where same with us? Were you guys there in October? Yeah, I think that was right around that time. It was like I feel like Delta was theoretically waning, and it was before Omicron had had reared its head. So yeah. it was kind of it's almost like obviously everybody's still extraordinarily careful, and you know, we were all mm. getting tested yep. and boosted and all those sorts of things. But yeah, it was like it, it almost felt like the perfect window to go out and meet with people and you know there's lots of act- outdoor activities one of the things we did were we drove exotic cars around a track and dude we did the same yeah. thing like how did we not bump into <laughs> each other we went to that one that was like a little outside the city yep. um where they have the little off-roading up on the hill in the distance whatever that's so yeah. crazy we, yeah we did the same thing we actually brought in our european team though now was a bit of a nightmare because it was like touch and go where they come we, in yeah we actually set up a prep spot they went to mexico for two weeks right. and rented a villa in Mexico so they could get into the US. Right. Yeah, we, yeah, we unfortunately are everybody outside the US. Um, we just couldn't, we couldn't bring over, we couldn't figure out the logistics on that. And yeah, we have, we have a yeah. big team in Japan. So the Japan team did their, did their thing with the U S team, did their other thing. So it's like, mm. yeah, it just kind of, I mean, it doesn't quite get you all the way there. Right. Like you want to have everybody yeah. together, especially when we were, we're so like we have it, trying to book a all company meeting with our company is a nightmare because it's like, it's going to be 6am for somebody and it's going to be like, you know, like 11pm for somebody else. So I think that's a really great time to, you know, try to get everybody together. Um, yeah, we run into those time zone issues too. It's not so bad when you're dealing with just two time zones. If you're dealing with Asia and the US, it can be a little tough, but it's, you know, someone's morning, someone's evening. Right. When you mix Asia, Europe, and the US, yep. that's when it gets, it's, it gets difficult. Yeah. Our management uh, uh, calls and meetups are someone's someone's buying the bullet there yeah we just we just made the decision going into this actually i was talking to the other teams when we went to that that offsite because some of the other portfolio companies for the from the private equity firm are there and just kind of chatting you know it's supposed to be a break but inevitably you talk business because that's kind of uh, i guess probably my whole personality it's like the only thing i know so uh we're going to talk about it eventually and um yeah we decided Do do you have meetups do you have like a like info sharing with the other uh portfolio companies that the private equity uh, company owns do you guys do some like here's what's working for us on the marketing side here's what's working for us on the hiring side do you get any kind of those yeah. the, the oh that's we cool. do yeah so we have once a week we have a all portfolio companies we kind of give you know a quick you know three to five minute update on the business and what we're working on what we're learning um you know th- theoretically we should also be using that time to talk about our failures as well but i think it's it's a little bit more challenging to convince everybody like you kind of have to get everybody on board um, because if everybody's talking about how much ass they're kicking and then you're the one that's like yeah well you know actually we've been striking out a lot <laughs> it's more yeah. it's more difficult to convince people to to be into that mindset but we do we're fortunate that we're able to get there a lot of time um and so that that's with all the portfolio companies uh, we have i think like uh I probably should know this, uh, probably like 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 businesses in the portfolio right now. Yeah. Um, we just hire or we just bought, um, or actually I shouldn't say any numbers about that cause nothing public yet, <laughs> uh, but we're a private equity <laughs> firm and we do buy businesses. Uh, and hopefully that's not a, uh, info leak there. Um, you know, the edit that beep, yeah. beep that <laughs> we, 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 we beeped, beep companies. Um, yeah, yeah. But, hey, so, so that's, that's kind of cool. You got a baked in mastermind yeah. with stakes, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So like everyone is like has uh, has uh, real uh, stuff going on um, and you're all kind of uh, 
well, the ownership is the same. That, that's interesting for even people who aren't a part of a private equity group or whatever, and they don't have that kind of benefit. I mean, I, I really do think masterminds are valuable. And I don't mean some like paid, I saw some YouTuber and he wants to be paid 20,000 a year for this mastermind. Right. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about, you know, actual other companies that are struggling with issues and are open to being transparent with you and, and in a group and Maybe, you know, uh, once a month, you know, someone takes a hot seat and you kind of work out some of their problems. I think, you know, maybe for uh, for earlier stages, like doing much more um, uh, uh, common uh, meetings or maybe even once a week for like early, early stage stars might make some sense. But for kind of like longer established companies, maybe once a month. But I think having a mastermind group where you can get together and kind of like, you know, uh, work out problems and issues and have other people take an outside look at your business and the issues you're having is super helpful. Yeah, we, we actually, uh, I guess like quarter two and quarter three of last year ran an experiment of like, well, what if we could put those groups together? And what if we could la layer, you know, kind of our knowledge from like the private equity playbook side and also all the learnings that we have from being bare metrics of having, you know, seeing all the data and understanding and, you know, working with, you know, we work with dozens of companies every single week and talking about the issues that they have and helping them get the data that they need to answer their questions and also hearing what's working and what's not working. So we actually did that for about two months. Um, and I think it's probably something we want to return back to because I, yeah, I agree. It's, uh, we learned a lot because we, you know, we made a bunch of mistakes. Like we had, we, we weren't really thinking about the time zone issue. So we had people all over the place. We had people that were in different stages. And I, I think that's something that's really critical is for any business out there that's, or any, any founders that are looking to, um, you know, get their own mastermind going, you know, finding other people that are in a similar place in the world and at a similar stage is really important. Um, yeah, Joe jo and I did this, this isn't like 2011 through maybe 2014, 15, but we got, a, it was like, it was a rough, it was a group of maybe 10, 12 people and we'd probably get six to eight people that would get together for these masterminds. We did it quarterly and we would do it in person. We were doing it in the Philippines. We do it at different locations and we'd rent out, you know, a nice little conference room and hotel and we kind of get in the conference room and we would take a full day and then you'd have about an hour each and you'd have, you know, three, four, five minutes to kind of catch everyone up on your business and then three, four, five minutes to lay out a problem and then just take heat from everyone around the table. There'd be a note taker and they would take notes on it, but they would just kind of like pepper you and hammer you and give you suggestions. And then, you know, you were done at the end of your hour. You would give up one thing that's been working out really well in your business, take three or four minutes and describe that. And then we would do that for everyone to kind of go around the table until we kind of exhausted, uh, you know, the thing. But it was really, really helpful for us. And it's particularly helpful for like solo founders who don't even have feedback from a co-founder right. and they are just really kind of operating in a vacuum it can be really challenging and so getting you know trusted third-party peers that are doing well or you know that are kind of hustling in their business can be really uh really helpful and really valuable i think yeah i've always felt like there's nothing easier or more enjoyable than solving someone else's business problems because <laughs> it's like <laughs> usually like relatively obvious once you divorce yourself from actually having to be the person to like implement the solution it's like hmm. generally pretty easy to see like what's going wrong or like especially for like the the hairy problems of like well you need to like fire that person or you know it's like it's really obvious and yes. you know, then you can turn it over to the actual the, the operator and, and then they have to like you know figure out how to navigate all that stuff but yeah i think it's like uh, i've always very much enjoyed being in those scenarios because it's like well i can just like 
point out the obvious solution and like the, the course of action. I have a little bit of experience running businesses, so I can maybe be a, a little bit more helpful in the implementation. Uh, but then you just hand it over. You're like, okay, cool. Well, now you do all the hard, difficult work of actually <laughs> implementing these things and figuring out how to, you know, how to get from point A to point B. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I can imagine um, that there are times where they're sitting and listening and, and the founder, right, in these these masterminds is just absolutely laying out. They know what they need to yep. do. They know because they're they're framing it in such a way that it makes the answer super clear. They just sometimes they just need to hear it from someone else. A thousand they percent. just need confirmation. They just want you to nod your head. You give them a nod and they're going to, OK, I know what I need to do. But it's just they need that kind of confirmation, right? They're still kind of. Um, just a little too nervous, a little too, uh, you know, dough in the headlights or whatever to kind of make the decision. They need someone else to kind of do it. I imagine psychologists find themselves in that situation sometimes. Yeah, I, I think it's really, it's really interesting too because there's not a clear, you know, I think like obviously like the media depiction of what it's like running a business is very different from the reality of it. And hmm. if you don't have that much experience or you're running through it, I think a lot of times what I would observe in those scenarios is like somebody would be like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. Like, I think this is what a founder does, but it doesn't quite sit right with me or I don't feel like I have the skills or whatever the case is. And like that, yeah. that was kind of the crux of like, like one of them, uh, let me think for two seconds before I, I don't want to dox anybody here. Um, <laughs> but I, I think I can say that, you know, one of the, one of the people that I was talking to, I think out, even outside of the group, they're like, Oh, well, should I like buy this business? Um, and, you know, that was like a really great conversation for us to have because we buy businesses and I've been involved. I've sold my business. Mm -hmm. I sold that business to another business and then I bought a business uh, twice. You know, so I've I've been around that a lot. Um, yeah. And so I think that it was really helpful for them to hear from somebody who's been involved in, you know, five or six transactions, which is you know, not much in the private equity world. But uh, it's like five or six more than most people. They're like, oh, I think they felt like they, they should be buying businesses and they, you know, they hear about how great it is to buy a company and, you know, they had all these kind of like theoretical benefits. But what, you know, when you actually ask like, well, what's the, you know, almost just like illustrate this for me, like, what is it going to look like for you to have bought this business? And what's the strategic advantage? What's the tactical advantage? There really was none. Like they couldn't really articulate it. So I think it's just like that they just thought yeah. they should. Yeah, that's interesting. Almost like they felt the pressure. Yep. Yeah, they feel the pressure. Well, growth through acquisition right. is, a, is a legitimate strategy. Correct. So they're like, oh, maybe that's me too. Maybe I need to go that do that too. And and then when they like, you know, uh, rubber hits the road, they're like, oh, yeah, I didn't really think of that through. I, I got to tell you, here's a weird thing we're struggling with now, right? So a lot of being an entrepreneur and they, you know, you don't hear this. It's always, uh, you know, you need to make um well-reasoned decisions based on the data. But the truth is, particularly starting off, a lot of your decisions are based on gut. You just don't have the three years to wait to get the data to really make that data decision. You're making decisions based on gut and feel <laughs> a lot, right? And so a lot of your early days, you're growing your business that way. And then as you get mature, the business gets mature, you bring in a lot of like data heads and data nerds that are <laughs> digging through the data and giving you actual data to help you make decisions. And so you have to go from this like purely gut to data-driven plus gut-driven decisions. And so balancing that is a real challenge. And so you know, we're finding ourselves now where we've got some some data providers and data people that are able to to give us data. And, and, but like it, it, it comes to the point where they choke you a little bit and like they're pointing you in a direction that the data is saying where 
your gut is like, no, that doesn't seem right to me. That doesn't vibe with me. And so, but I, I can't really, you know, like I just know that that's not right for our company. Right. And so that's a really, like, it's really hard to argue with data and and yeah. sometimes you're right and sometimes you're wrong and you don't want to be the idiot that just won't listen to data but the sometimes on, on the other hand you know that sometimes i don't give a shit what the spreadsheet says you know what i mean yeah that's a struggle yeah, I, I have no answer yeah. to that it's not like i could provide some insight i'm like we're struggling with it now but totally it's a, it's it's every single time it's like it's like just a new challenge it's a new you know difficult yeah, there's a lot of decisions made around that that can go either way you know yeah yeah, I, I'm totally in the same boat. And especially, again, I don't know how many times I'm going to say private equity this episode, but you know, we're, we, because we're owned by a private equity firm, you know, P firms are, you know, we're heavily, you know, playbook based. Like we, we do the reason why we have all these companies and being really diligent about tracking what we're doing and what works and what doesn't work and what's best practice and so on and so forth is so that we can, you know, deploy these things. And that was actually, frankly, what attracted me to work at a, a company owned by a PE firm is like, well, we're not just, we're not just guessing, um, you know, out of nothing or, you know, like the way it was when I ran my first business, like there's at least some building blocks and some structure to build on here. And I kind of want to, you know, become a student again and learn. Um, but yeah, like I absolutely, I absolutely drive the, the partners that I report to crazy in the scenarios where I'm like, yeah, here's the results from the, you know, this experiment, like, you know, how's this X experiment going and I'm like yeah you know the results just don't feel right and they're like what do you mean <laughs> like, like what like what do you mean and, you know and so it's really been a challenge for me to to develop that muscle because I've, I have to um, you know in this sort of scenario I think it's actually been a great boot camp for me that you know on a weekly basis and then you know a, a bi-weekly basis and then doing you know uh, whatever a couple times a, a quarter doing you know reports up to the board formally um, so I, 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 sorry, I, I'm interviewing you now, but I, I got to ask. So, like, when you took over the business, was it just after the acquisition? I Josh sold the business to the private equity group. Did you take over right after we brought in to kind of like it, as part of that transition? Yes. Yeah, I came in <laughs> as due diligence was happening. And this is last in 2020. Yeah. Yes. 2020. Yep. So was this was it challenging because you know the, the founder had an original vision for the business mm -hmm. and so you're stepping in and, and you and, and the investors are going to have um, there's some alignment there obviously but some of it's going to change and it's going to change over time. How did the team deal with that transition between Josh's vision and your vision and the investors vision? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's really hard. Um, mm. And you know, I think it's challenging, especially for me, I've only ever run my own business or, uh, you know, joined a company when I sold my business, I was the director of product for that business. So, um, you know, again, kind of a similar situation that you were in of like, okay, cool. Like I have a more limited scope, um, you know, and you know, I've, I know how to, I came from yeah. a product management background. So yeah, I think it was like, it was challenging on multiple different levels. And I think it's, it's frankly, from what we've seen when a private equity firm buys a company, like there's usually huge attrition and usually it happens pretty quickly, not from anything where, um, at least from our perspective, I don't know how it works from an industry as a whole, but like there is a different vibe, you know, 
going from a founder-led business to a PE-led business, you know, almost exactly to that sentiment that I was just saying of like, you know, if you're a founder-led business and you say like, well, we should build this feature. And they say, why? Because I think it'll be cool. And it's like, (laughs) awesome, let's do it. You know, and then you go into the PE world, it's like, well, you know, is anybody going to use this? Like it, customers are asking for it. It's like, well, are customers willing to pay for it? Is this, is this actually yeah. going to like how, make how many, the- how many have asked for it? And like, are they willing to prepay for it? Can you right. test that? Show me the numbers. Right. Totally. It, so it's, it's, yeah. it's night and day. So I think that, yeah, I think it's, it was, it's really challenging. I think in, in any case for that scenario, of, you know, I think now that we are yeah, kind of like, you know, whatever, 18 months after I, I'm trying to do the math. I think we have like one person who stayed all the way through 18 months. Mm. Um, so, yeah. That's I don't interesting. Th- I, on the broker side, because we deal with this a lot, right? So we're helping people buy companies and helping uh, entrepreneurs sell their companies. And, you know, in some cases, you know, they're the, the entrepreneurs selling their business, but they're going to stick around. Either they're, right. they're retaining some equity, yep. there's a you know, long earn out period or whatever. And so, you know, there's the, the, the buyer wants the entrepreneur to stick around because they, they need a longer transition. Other other times they're leaving right away. In some cases, you know, the buyers, part of their value gain is like they know that they can replace some of the people in you know a relatively short amount of time with um, uh, process and, and automation, right? And so their whole goal is to save costs, yeah. cut costs, and improve the margins by, you know, getting rid of people. In other right. cases, they really want that mind share of people. In fact, they plan on scaling up people uh, heavily, and so they're going to need those people to be aligned because they need them to stick. They can't have the churn, right? Right. And so it's it's really interesting. And and part of our value comes in, you know, as as brokers, is you know, a seller builds their business up to the point where they're like, this is maximum value. I can't squeeze another penny out of this business. Yep, this yep. is it, 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 the only place for it to go from here is down. And you know, maybe it's doing the 50,000 a month or whatever. They're like, this is as good as it's going to get. And you have a buyer on the other end going, you know, I typically don't buy businesses until they're 50,000 a month or over. Right. This is kind of a small one for me. I'll take a flyer at it, but I know I can grow it in this, this, and this way. So the buyer has expectations to get it to two, 250,000 a month in four or five years. Right. And the seller is like, Oh my God, I don't think I can get to 55,000 a month. So this real disconnect yep. between buyers and sellers is like why we exist, 100%. right? Because you know, to bring them together and let the seller know, no, people do want to buy your business. They have, they'll have plans for it. And, uh, and buyers are looking for, you know, consistent deal flow. So, yeah, absolutely. And you know, that, that describes us exactly like from the, from the Xenon side, just the name of the private equity firm, which I don't know if I said that yet. Um, they, yeah, we're like looking kind of like at the 100K MRR. You know, that's kind of a, a rough guideline. And um, my business that I built in kind of a weird series of events actually wound up being is owned by Xenon now. So the company that I started is in the same. You didn't sell to them, but it sold to someone else. It sold to them. Yeah, exactly. It's kind of very strange. The small Uh, world, isn't it? If for sure. Yeah. And so I think it's, but that business was doing like 15 K MRR when I sold it. So, uh, (laughs) you know, it grew a little bit, but you know, so we'll look at, you know, on the strategic side, if it makes sense, like, especially if we're going to combine products together, we'll buy on the smaller side, but yeah, absolutely. That was the case for me of like, I have no idea, or actually I did know, like I knew I wanted to be, I wanted to get to about 50K MRR. And like every time I ran the numbers, like the right way to do that was like, basically like wait three years of like, we're growing yeah. slowly, nothing that I, I'm doing can get us there. But like when- Do you feel bad? I mean, you sold you said you sold it was around 15,000. Let's yeah. say you got 
I don't know, 3X out of it, 4X. Yeah. So you're probably maybe like six to five hundred to $800,000 yep. probably. So like now, I don't know what it's doing, 50, 60,000 a month, but like are you, are, are there any, is there any regret? Do you look back and they go, oh, I should have held that a little longer or are you like, I'm happy I got out when I got out? It, you know, at the time, it was the right decision. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I don't have any regret at all, which maybe is like uh, not the right answer. Uh, you, know, I, I, you know, maybe the diplomatic answer is like, ah, you know, it's such a great business and I, I loved our customers. But like, I mean, I was I, I started the business at like a startup weekend with with some friends and then grew it. And then I was doing it nights and weekends. And then, you know, our, the developer that we were working with, which was one of my friends, like he wrote code all day long. Uh, mm. And then eventually he's like, well, I don't want to do write code all weekend. So I'm like, all right, I'll do that. Um, which I didn't know how to do it. Uh, and I thought like, how hard can it be? You know, it was like really hard. Um, you know, so I did that nights and weekends, like for two years. And then I ran it for another five years. And then, you know, after that period and kind of like throwing everything I could at it to grow faster and not getting there, it was just like, you know, first off, it's just really challenging. You know, it's, it's, mm. it's a really, really tough, you know, prospect. And also that's when I really got into that mindset. When I made the decision to sell, the, the kind of thought that solidified it for me was like, okay, well, you know, my, my, my three year goal is to get to, you know, 50 K MRR. Like, how can I do that in three months? And that's how yeah. it came to me to, to sell it. And, you know, I sold it, it toured it around in January, um, had a, uh, offer letter in, you know, like February 1st and then closed March 1st. Uh, yeah. and then all of a sudden now I'm sitting in a business with, uh, I don't think they're very public with their revenues, but it was you know, much more than $50,000 sure. a month yeah. um, that I'm, you know, uh, I'm a director of. So that was kind of for me and, you know, getting to learn everything there, getting into this opportunity to learn everything here. Um, you know, I would still be, I would have just like, just crossed 50k like maybe like last year um, yeah. if i was still running that business provided you know there wasn't a huge downturn i didn't have any huge issues so sure um, there's, there's lots of things on the rise you don't know what's gonna happen that's one of the things though that we you know we have our, our team kind of like counsel and advise sellers on because you know they're you want to make sure they're clear-eyed going into deals right and so mm -hmm. it's not some kind of like oh just sell right now and you know relieve the the pressure you need to be sure about it because it is a process right and, and you know this but selling your business is not just okay here you go turn it over good luck right um there's a process to it and we do everything we can to make that easier and more efficient but you're still gonna it's gonna take some time and you're gonna have to dig it through your numbers and you're gonna have to be clear and certain that you want to sell and so we want to make sure that people are very comfortable kind of heading into it and then you know part of it is like kind of helping guide them a lot of times sellers get in front of themselves and cause themselves their own issues yep so you know they're getting down to it and they're you know um you know n negotiating over something that's really not important to them and, and the real yeah. issue is something else but they just they can't really they don't verbalize it they're just fighting over you know fifty thousand dollars and whatever retained earnings or something right. you know what i mean yeah and like and the real issue is something else they're feeling some regret about it and so right. we work with them and see if it's really something they want to do and so yeah the, a lot of ours is and it, it this is really the fun stuff for us is kind of like counseling sellers and guiding them on whether they should or shouldn't sell their business if they do you know what that sale looks like who they may want to sell to um you know we'll we'll take sellers and uh you know we have a, something called a select listing process where you know they'll take their business to us and we will um w you know we'll take it to market and we'll help them get everything ready get their p ls ready and everything but then take it to a bunch of uh, buyers we know 
on our list and have already proven liquidity. So um, in our case, all of our buyers that potentially want to buy from our marketplace, we have them connect their bank accounts or send in financial statements showing how much available cash or investment, right. uh, investable cash they have. Yeah. So we know the buyers that are cashed up and ready to go so we can take them to market and then have those businesses compete for their listing. So, you know, it's not always about the cash. It is partially, right? Like how much cash you're going to get, how much of that cash is up front, but it's also the terms, right? Like how long are they going to be working in the business? What's going to be required of them post sale? Right. right. Um, is that earnout going to be, um, uh, require any uh, goals to be hit? Is it going to be performance-based or time-based? What does that look like? Um, which which buyers are more likely to actually pay those earnouts versus not pay those earnouts? And what's the leverage you have in case they don't pay? These are all things we help you know sellers work through. And and you know it, it's you can um, you know uh, try to do this on your own, but I there, you know I and whether they use us or not, I really recommend, particularly if it's a transaction that's above a hundred thousand, um, and and particularly in the seven and low eight figures really use somebody it is worth it you want a dispassioned uh advisor working with you to help you kind of navigate the deal it's it's worth the money yeah i wish we would have had somebody like we kind of did everything ourselves and you know to some extent i got really lucky because the 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 person who the ceo of the business that bought ours his kind of like most recent gig before that was running MA for Rackspace, uh, who was like, you know, did a, a bunch of transactions. So it was like, it was about like, about as easy as it could have gone. Uh, you know, and there yeah. was even one funny you know story I tell of like, you know, we were on the call, you know, since like February 1st and it's like me and my counsel and, and him and his counsel. And we're kind of usually, you know, it's like the lawyers arguing with each other and the founders, mm -hmm. you know, sitting on the outside. But this time it was like, me and the, the CEO of that business telling the lawyers like, okay, we need to, we need this done March 1st. And the lawyer's <laughs> going like, oh, it's kind of fast. I'm like, we're like, just, yeah, just get it done. And the yeah. other person's like, well, what about this and that? I'm like, yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out. But even it's funny. <laughs> it's funny having like, like, and that's, that's the thing we work with too. Like sometimes uh, people bring their lawyers to the table and they're, sometimes they're like actual business advisor, advisors, or, or, you know, business attorneys. Sometimes yeah. they have like familiarity with M&A, but most of the time they don't. Sometimes they don't even, they're not even, you know, uh, familiar with like businesses. They're right. like their family law guy or whatever. Right, yeah. And so, you know, they are just, and they're, I, I, I'm going to assume good faith. You know, they're working on behalf of their client as best they can, but they don't, they're just, they step on deals. They don't know what they're doing. Like that can be a bit of a nightmare. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes it does come down to the entrepreneur telling the lawyer, Hey, okay, well this is, we're doing it this way, mm. you know, how, protect me, but like, this is the, the way it needs to be done. And so that's something that we, we help them with. We have M and A advisors that we can send them to that, you know, are familiar with deals and how they work and they can look out for their interests, but also not squash their deal due to, you know, some, time-wasting ridiculousness yeah totally yeah, we, we we had terms before either of us brought you know counsel in and then yeah know, we kind of got through i mean it was it was still even with and why i wish we had somebody to help us is that it was still you know it was brutal it was like you know it was months so it was pretty fast timeline and you know i kind of felt the you know the the desire to get through it as quickly as possible but you know the buyer is going to ask for you know 
documents that you either you know, don't know where they are or don't have or asking for, you know, whatever, five-year yeah. P&L projections. It's like, well, we don't, we don't know. the You know, it's just like, or even just like, actually even historical things. Like, well, what does, you know, what does your P&L look like historically? And it's just like, oh, well, man, when's the last time I reconciled QuickBooks? You know, it's just like all these, oh. all these sorts of things that, you know, as like a solo founder, you know, as long as there's more, more cash in the business than you're spending every single month, you don't have to worry about well, that stuff well it, it helps with their bare metrics customers i'd, I'd be willing to bet for sure um, <laughs> so yeah no we, we run the same thing sometimes we have you know we're on calls with one of our advisors on and you've got the buyer um the seller or sellers and then you've got like four or five attorneys and just you can like you can just feel the money being burnt yep you know what i mean yep. <laughs> like on those calls and it, it, it it's like drag heat, out. It's a heat generated from all the you cash do 20 being... 25 minutes of introductions right right <laughs> everyone's like going around there you're like oh my this is mm-hmm. gonna this is expensive for everyone yeah um yeah so that definitely happens and then we have sellers that come in and they're like we're like what do you make let's let's kind of let's dig into this let's see what your business is worth and they're like yeah i don't know i mean i have money coming in and some months it's thirty thousand, some months it's 120 some months it's negative 15 right and we're like oh god we got some work to do we're yep. gonna help you through this but you know it's we get we need, we need more than that buddy right <laughs> we're gonna have to get more than that yeah yeah even just from a if from a black box perspective just like without even knowing what the product does like how healthy is it is it growing is it shrinking is it mm-hmm. cash generating is it cash burning and you know you'd be amazed at, like even large businesses even businesses doing quite a bit of money it, in some cases, the founders are kind of just treating it like, like it's just part of them too. It's just kind of For like sure. their personal checking account, right? And they're spending out of it, and 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 it's it's crazy. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, yeah, we we just we just acquired this um, you know financial planning forecasting tool called FlightPath, and so we're working with those types of companies, and like yeah, it's like crazy. Like the two types of businesses that we work with, like when we're getting them signed up, are, are like businesses that are like really trying to be smart with their you know they're trying to like level up their finances they want to do you know forecasts versus actuals and they want to kind of automate their forecasts and they want to like be really smart really on it you know at least mm-hmm. on a monthly basis checking in and you know setting a budget and doing those sorts of things um and then the other type of company we work with is like companies that are raising money and it's really funny that you know the reason why they come to us is because they've done literally nothing on the finance side to figure out like you know it's like well how do you like forecast like how much money you're going to have next month? And what it really comes down to is like, you know, if they have more money in the bank than they're spending, like if they make more than what they spend, <laughs> like literally I, I, one of the things we say is like, well, you know, as a part of the, we do a, a paid onboarding process. And one of the things we do is like, you send us like whatever spreadsheet you're using to budget and forecast and, you know, all the crazy charts. And, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. we get one from somebody that's like top line sales, second line salaries, third line, other expenses. And then like, you know, it's just like <laughs> fourth line amount left over, you know, plus or minus uh, money and, to spend. Yeah. yeah it, you're it, like, whoa. Yeah. Like, are we burning or are we making money? And then I don't know, to some degree, I kind of almost agree with that mentality of like, well, if you always have enough money and you know that you can invest, but the, the issue is okay. that those businesses don't invest. They don't yeah. hire that yeah. person because well, they never feel confident that they, you know, over 12 months they can recoup and those sorts of things. Yes. 
Well, we do a lot of uh, e-commerce and Amazon FBA businesses, mm -hmm. right? And so, you know, you have situations where you know, they're kind of just, you know, they're taking the money, they're spending it, you know, they're buying inventory when needed, but they don't like stock up for holidays or whatever. And so they end up, you know, stocked out. They don't have inventory. And there's periods, you know, in the last 12 months, in, in some cases where they just didn't have inventory. And so they weren't able to sell any products. Right. Like that really hurts you. If it's like eight or nine months ago, it's worth, let's hang out for a couple of months, make sure you're stocked up and let's get to that 12 months so we can sell your business for what it's actually worth. Right. <laughs> because that doesn't look good. And that's going to hurt you financially in this transaction. So let's uh, let's get that squared away. Let's make sure you have inventory the entire time. Yeah, yeah. And people are going to be like, "Oh, is it seasonality or what's going on?" I mean, yeah, the, yeah. The answer is almost more embarrassing. Ah, yeah, no, we yes. just forgot to have stuff. <laughs> like I forgot yes. that we we sell stuff, and we yeah, just totally slipped our mind that we should have stuff to sell. <laughs> we should have stuff. That's kind Oopsie. of important. Oopsie doopsie. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, Justin, I told you I wasn't going to keep you too long, and. Um, I think I've kept you kept you long. I'd love to. I don't <laughs> want to put you on the spot, but I'd love, you know, if you have any sort of advice as you're talking, especially, you know, operating in the, the broker capacity, you know, if you have any kind of advice or, or things that you think are really useful for the audience, I'd love to kind of hit them with, you know, the, the quick the quick feedback or at least lessons that you've learned that you think are really important to, to double down on it and, and share with the audience. Yeah, anyone looking at, you know, or thinking about selling their business, I'd really recommend a book called Built to Sell. I think it's a really good read. It, it really helps you, you understand what's interesting from a buyer's perspective and gives you some insights, I think, and, and helps you kind of um, change or adjust your business to be more sellable uh, from the eyes of a buyer. I'd also recommend, you know, you can set up a call, free call with our team, or we can kind of walk you through the steps. Even if you're, you know, 6, 12, 18 months out from selling your business, you know, we're willing to kind of, you know, give you some ideas and some feedback on what you can do to improve your business or more, you know, prepare your business for sale down the road. And, and we can talk about what your evaluation might be today and, and what you're looking at. But I'll give you a link you can share that people can, can uh, click on and, and talk to our guys. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely include in there. And just like you said in that example, you know, you might be recommending to that client that they wait another couple of months, six months, 12 months to sell. So uh, I do think it's it's smart just to know um, what, what also, the number is and, and what to what to track and what to, you know, if you yeah. if you think that you're on it rarely, I think it rarely happens like it happened for me where I'm like, you know, December 31st, I decide to sell and then March 1st, the deal is closed. Like that's like a hyper unicorn. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I probably had been thinking about it a lot that past year and before that. So uh, well, I got to tell you, you know, like seven figure, even low eight figure deals can be done inside of six months. In fact, we just did a uh, I think it was a seven or eight million dollar deal from the time they first spoke to us to the time they got paid was less than three months. Wow. So, That's awesome. yeah, I mean, you can get these deals done um, in a reasonably short time frame as long as you're as long as your finances are in a good spot and it's a good time for you to sell. Then we'll push it and get it done relatively quickly. There's a lot of money uh, on the table. We have a whole bunch of buyers that are interested in spending their money, particularly on SaaS businesses. So it's a really good time to sell. Um, it's it's really a seller's the season of the sellers. Our marketing team is calling it right, but it, it, it really is. It's uh, to the seller's advantage right now. And also, we have a, a valuation tool. If anyone's curious about kind of like just getting a sense on what their business would be sellable for, I'll give you a link to our valuation tool. They can check it out for free. We we use it as a marketing tool, obviously, to to drive leads or whatever. But it's the same exact tool we actually use to list and price businesses in our marketplace. So if people want to take a look at that and they want to look at some of the businesses for sale, they can do that. Awesome. Justin, thanks so much for your time. This has been really great. Thanks, Brian. It's a lot of fun, man. Appreciate it. Of course.
That was our conversation with Justin Cook, the founder and CMO of Empire Flippers. If you need a better way to sell your online business, you know where to go, empireflippers.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-E-F-L-I-P-P-E-R-S.com. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend or leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.